from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Welcome to Cars That Matter. This is Robert Ross. On this episode, we'll continue our conversation with my guest, Eddie Sato. So, Eddie, with these very ambitious private jets came a car project called Regatta. I know you'd created a Rolls-Royce vision that complemented Sky Yacht. Why don't you tell us about that? Then we can legitimately say that we're talking about cars that matter. Oh, cars. Forgot about that. No. So, well, the funny thing is everything, it all comes from these things. And, and I looked at the Sky Yacht and it was such a complete vision. And yachts have tenders. There's always a transitional transportation system that goes between the home and that. And I thought, if you are really the kind of seamless person that loves the immersion and seamless thing, why not have a touch of the Sky Yacht and then transfer it into the car? So the two match. You're right, you're right. And I thought that would be really kind of a fun thing. So there's a vendor that we work with who builds supercars and prototypes for all the biggest European auto manufacturers, and they're insanely diligent here in California. So I don't like to render anything that I don't know already can't be built or put a price tag on. I just think it's a disservice to everyone. So this regatta, I thought, well, you know, what if you could do the same deck on the hood and the roof and do all the wood planking inlays you would find on a Chris Craft on the roof with flush mounted brass and use brass with the bright metal parts and aluminum and everything else as an interior, patinaed interior and do wood and brass inside and bring this nautical feel into the car. And it's funny, I put this online, just a proposal because I just thought that was the answer and said, you could have it all if you wanted to. And 80% of the time, I just kind of do something because I think it'd be interesting. The regatta was an amazing thing. And what I really enjoyed about that car, you made so many references to historical Rolls-Royce automobiles and some other marks back when skiff bodies were actually a badge of an extremely distinct coach-making style from the 20s and even earlier. And a remarkable thing. The sort of confluence of historical and cutting-edge contemporary was something that I thought was really beautifully imagined. You know, I went to a variety of different museums and looked at Skiff, did a lot of photo research, and to see how the wood was inlaid on the trunk lid, you know, in those sort of boat tail Skiff designs. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if it's you or me or what, and, and your listeners can flame me if you want, but I feel like there's been this mass homogenization in even the finest automobiles, Jaguar being one of them. You look at different automobiles and you kind of go, there was a time when all these things were so distinctive. Even a Mustang was a very distinctive thing. And when you looked at five cars on the road, they looked like five different people from five foreign countries. They really right. had this thing. But unfortunately, the chrome plinth has started with one brand and now everybody has it and everyone, they've all homogenized. So I thought, well, how can I take that same approach that succeeded with Sky Yacht of using the fine little engravings and bringing lost arts like Intarsia, which is marquetry, inlaid woods. That's right. How can I bring all that into a car without it being gratuitous, do it in a legacy way and bring it to like the finest brand that's there so you don't see repetitive parts borrowing from one piece to another, from a Bentley to a that's Rolls. Right. So if you're really going to spend the money for this car and, and frankly with clients... I may put a concept out there, but I'm going to work with them to personalize it and say, hey, look, these entire things are about navigation. Where are you from? Oh, well, let's put this into it. 
and make it a journey for the client so they're part of the customization. That's right. And I've always looked up to Ed Roth and Barris and all those car customizers. I'm trying to take it as a, well, what if you could take the DNA of a Barris or the DNA? I used to know Ed Big Daddy Roth and not as a friend, but I met him and worked with him at Knott's Berry Farm when he was a sign painter of all things. And these guys are visionaries. They didn't build this for others. Ed was building a solar car in 1980 for himself because he thought it was cool. So how do you take that spirit and then elevate it into like the finest artisans, the finest luxury and do something still restrained? But one of one, you know, for somebody, that's the why of it, I guess. One of one is what it's all about. And you've certainly accomplished that in your visions and your projects for your clients, some of whom you can name, others who shall remain nameless. But the portfolio is hugely impressive, Eddie. You know, you talk about an old guy that you had an occasion to meet and do a little work with, a customizer named Ed Roth. That takes us back to cars and cars in, in California, which were really such a driving force in car culture worldwide back in the 60s and 70s and throughout the end of the last century. What kind of lessons did you learn there? And let's talk about some of the cars that have inspired you. Oh, I'd love that. Well, I would say, you know, from Ed Roth. Ed Roth, who did he look up to? I was taught by set designers and I didn't realize that my favorite set designer, I ended up working with this Disney artist and I told him that he wasn't my idol. It was this other guy. And he goes, well, I was his teacher. So it kind of taught me to say, oh, wow. So I'm actually working with the teacher of the guy that I look up to. But what was neat about Ed Roth is, you know, he was the master of in the 50s of taking fiberglass and really creating cars out of whole cloth, right. not just mashing up hot rods out of bootleg vehicles and stuff like this or rat rods back then. But he was into doing this. But who did he look up to? He actually looked up to Von Dutch. There's a great story where he asked Von Dutch, he says, where did you learn to pinstripe hoods with these beautiful eagle designs and all this really cool stuff? And Von Dutch looks at him. Of course, we can all imagine that on the hood of a Mercury or something. You have these abstract pinstripe designs that are right there where the hood ornament would have been or around it. And then, of course, that's just part of striping today. So Von Dutch says, well, I didn't think of anything. And that's a what? No, I didn't think of anything. He says, guys had come in with Bondo on their hood, and there were grinder marks in the Bondo. And all I would do, the, the guy would say, what can you do with these grinder marks? I got big spirally grinder marks right here on the hood of my car. So Von Dutch would take the pinstriping brush and paint right on top of the grinder marks some arced pinstripes. <laughs> and he goes, well, that doesn't look very good. What can I make out of that? And then Von Dutch would add some other arcs. Then he would add, oh, it could look like this. It could look like that. So finally, he says, you know what? It looks really weird having it all on the right side of the hood. I know. I'll just do the exact thing in reverse on the left side of the hood. And I'll make it look like a bird or an eagle or a skull or whatever it is. And he would do all of these pinstriping designs. And he just tells Ed, basically, it was a giant accident, just like penicillin, just like so Isn't many that things. incredible? And I feel like we're all searching for things that have a human feel to them, that they don't come out of a computer or something like that. So when I design stuff, various things, whether it's engravings, a lot of handwork goes into it. So Eddie, you really draw. You really, really draw. Oh, I do. I drew in 48 hours all the interior elevations of the sky at myself. Mm -hmm. I draw everything. I do sketches, drawings, storyboards, renderings. On our site, you'll see real artwork. I don't think of myself as a fine artist, but I'm a communicator. I can do elevations, sections, moldings, tables, chairs, everything. So that's just what I love doing. But I love the idea that sometimes the most brilliant ideas are when we preside over accidents or we observe things that are found and being an observer. And so I, I just love that Ed Roth 
and, and all these guys, they're very human. They're making things with their hands. We're not just dragging and dropping things. And people sense that. They feel that. You're absolutely right. You know, that human touches everything. You had said something before that on your site or in one of our former conversations, form follows fantastic. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant. You want to expand on that a little? I sure do. Form follows function is a great sort of architectural watchword, design watchword that if it does anything more than function, you need to strip away all the design down to its bare essence. And I would say that there's products and things that I feel that that serves really, really well. Right. The Austrian architect Adolf Luce used his famous manifesto, the crime of ornament talks about that. <laughs> but not so. Here's the funny thing is that today we're living in another neo-Victorian period where computers have allowed people to carve things and laser cut things and make things just by dragging and dropping. So people that don't know anything about design can drag pre-made design and sort of like the bandwidth of mediocre has gotten a lot bigger just because there's right. a lot more mediocre graphic design out there. Things Just because people, <laughs> anybody can make a graphic and it can be good. It could be okay. It's just not going to be inspired or well-composed or well-proportioned. It is certainly not going to be authentic. And it's certainly not going to be authentic or it's just authentic to the year 2020 and where we are. Just because you can use a computer lathe bed or a CNC milling machine, take an old design and create ornaments. So you have, when I look at Frank Geary buildings and things like this that are just completely without function. To me, that's a neo-Victorian move just to see the frozen music facades, whether you like them or not. But form also is about emotional tuning. When I look at an experience, like coming into a space, all of us, you know, we're all measuring the temperature and sound and lighting. How many restaurants you go into, the lighting is terrible or the music, you hate the playlist, right? Or whatever, okay? Or we love it. So it's about tuning many elements all at once. So fantastic is the symphony. It's putting all of it together. It's the art. Ornament can work. So I did this insanely complex, most complex room I've ever done in my life. And my client had members of his cadre that were critics and say, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be, I just had getting beat up every turn. Well, I managed the color balance and managed the contrast levels of every finish that went into this space. So by the time it was done, nothing was fighting for your attention. All the ornament lived there, but it lived in a way that someone master planned what you're supposed to be looking at. So there was a hierarchy of order. Like cities don't have that. Everybody puts the loudest sign to get your attention. Disneyland Main Street, only the signs that are important are over-designed or are designed in such a way that they attract your attention. And the secondary graphics are treated that way. They're contrast levels and everything. It's like squinting your eyes and looking at something. When you squint your eyes, the most dominant contrast comes to the fore. That's right. The color goes away and the contrast is heightened. Thank you. Or, or like a symphony, you know, a symphonic work as opposed to, say, a piece of contemporary pop music where everything's loud. There's no dynamic range. It's all loud, 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 loud. And then all of a sudden, loud means nothing. Right. But in a symphony, you've got ebbs and flows. You've got a climax. You've got quiet portions of the music. And design has to have that ebb and flow as well. Yes, well said. And so when you think of that symphony, it has rests, it has crescendos. Why? Because a symphony is an emotional journey. And I look at rooms and spaces as emotional journeys. When you walk into the entrance to a house, unfortunately in 
the McMansions we have in Los Angeles. You have the tallest anteroom, biggest cheap <laughs> chandelier you've ever seen. They've been told, whether it's a scene from Gone with the Wind or something, you have to have this big stairway to impress everybody. And that's the wow moment. Well, there's some truth to that. But if you look at the older homes that were designed, they weren't ostentatious in that way. They that's impressed right. over a period of time. So there's ways of moderating it. So form, following fantastic means, to me, it means that two things, that there's a vision there that's informing every single thing that you see. And everything is done, like the Bible says, in moderation, all things in balance and moderation. So you kind of bring these things in in moderation, and then you just accent the things that need to be there. And so it's not the old adage that if everything is special, nothing is special. And we live in a world, unfortunately, I think that human personality is driven more of the latter, where you can come into a space. Now, you might say, well, minimalism, Eddie, that isn't everything is special. That's, frankly, that is nothing could be special. Now, there's moments of tranquility where if you're going to meditate, maybe you do want a, a beautiful empty room. But I might add, great movie sets have a beautiful backing or view outside of them because there's always a world outside of the interior set. So then let's take this into automobiles. Automobiles interior, I try to treat them like a jet. So the regatta, I said, well, if you can reach 18 inches around you, every texture, everything you feel, because you can't always be looking at it when you're feeling it at a car, all those textures have to reward you. So the texture of the leather, the way that the knobs have a grain on the knob, if there's a wood, it better feel like it. The metals need to be cold, not vacuum metalized plastics. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of things, if it's brass, it's going to feel like brass and it's going to wear where you've touched it. So it looks like there's a story there, like there's been a sense of ownership. Those are the little things. And and I know you're a detail guy. And I, I think I was blown away when I came into your advertising firm and saw that Maserati in there. It reminded me of Dan Tana from the TV show Vegas, where his car was in the room. Well, you know, sometimes you want to live close to the things that you love. And obviously, we all love cars on this show. Now is probably a good time to let you talk about some of the cars that you love, not necessarily the ones you've designed, but the cars that you see on the street, the cars you've had in your garage, your first car. Where to start, Eddie? Oh, I don't know. Well, my first car was that little toy Aston Martin because I just love the idea of the gadgets. Little DB5, that's hard to beat, huh? The little DB5, I still have it. I mean, in the 70s, of course, it was a very depressing, sad period of time because when I turned 16, this is when the AQMD started all the smog devices. That's right. And so unless you had the money for like a goat or something from the 60s, I had a 70 Camaro. So it was all, you know, it was okay. You know, it was all right. I, I did the, what I could, cruise the boulevard and chromed the traction bars and did all the muscle car things that teenagers do. And Well, 70 Camaro was still a good looking car. It still had the chops. It didn't have the big old ugly bumpers on it. Granted, the writing was on the wall for the end of the performance era, but I could have done a lot worse. The Knox system. I remember the Knox system, you know, and of course, to me, gas was very expensive, but I did fall in love with that. And my dad loving cars, my grandfather worked at MGM Studios, our family was in the film, behind the camera sort of film thing at at one time or another. And so my grandfather, we used to work on the MGM lot and he's a scenic artist. He's not making a lot of money, but he felt, boy, you know, he's a Sicilian like I am. You got to be a big shot, right? He buys Mary Pickford's (laughs) 1936 Cadillac limousine. No kidding. And this is in 1943. So it was long in the tooth at that time. Oh my God. So there's pictures of this little short Italian guy driving this giant limousine. And and of course they must've thought he was the driver, not the owner. (laughs) But he had Mary Pickford's limousine. So I, I remember as a kid always growing up with a love of cars. It's kind of funny we talk about the handmade 
experience and we look at muscle cars today and I'm sure we're conditioned to the build quality of computers and we look at the way the metals were stamped and put together for trim and all that and you kind of go, how did I handle it then, you know? That's right. Well, we didn't know any better, but there is something. We didn't know any better, yeah. Yeah, something kind of human about seeing the pavement when you open the hood. That's absolutely true. It's certainly a more homespun authenticity to the way things were put together. Sure. You know, I think the, the whole predominance of plastics and synthetics today in automobiles makes them feel a whole lot different than metal. I remember my dad tapping on a, oh, I was looking to buy a Lancia back in the 70s of all things, and he's tapping on some plastic part. And he said, so I'm like, Bob, this is all a bunch of damn plastic. <laughs> well, even then, even then, plastic was rearing its ugly head. And of course, now we've got some amazing composite technologies, but we had to go through a transition from metal to synthetic materials to sort of get to where we are today. Yeah, I've always been partial. I love, I have a Porsche 911. I've always loved Porsche. I'm not a purist. As a teenager, I always had my eye on Pantera. I always liked the De Tomaso Pantera. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was Tom Shara's design. And I design. also like yeah. weird cars. I know that if I, if I could go to dinner in anything, it would be a Lagonda, the old... It looked like something Lady Penelope and the Thunderbirds would drive or something, those puppet shows. They were hugely daring and probably the most space-aged car of its era. And I dare say, though you, they were about the most expensive car of their time, catapulting forward a couple of decades, you couldn't give them away. But now I think there's actually a bit of a resurgence just because they're, they're such amazing things. Much like the De DeLorean, they sort of encapsulate an era that is never coming back. You know, the worst car experience I can remember in my life... My dad comes in and goes, look at this car and this ad, Eddie. Look at this. I think I want this. You know what the car was? An AMC Pacer. I said, dad, Gosh. dad, dad, no, this is what you want. You want what Kevin Wilson down the street, what his dad bought. My dad goes, what is that? I go, his dad has a, and we should just still get one. His dad has a Dodge Charger. And I said, that's the car for us, Dad. He goes, well, it's just not economical enough with that big engine in there and all that. We need good gas mileage. I'm like, Dad, forget about the gas mileage. You can't get a pacer. I can't be seen in a you know, the space <laughs> buggy. I think he ended up getting the worst Toyotas with a Borg Warner automatic transmission ever made or something. So we had some dark periods in our car family. There were the dark ages that we had to go through. Of course, ironically, now the Pacer is an icon of kitsch. And I guess if you had a couple of those in the garage, you could actually take them to auction and yeah. have some fun. I love Studebaker Avanti. I think the Avanti is just a cool elegant design, Raymond Lowy. You know, I thought that was like a gorgeous design. So there's a lot of them that are really pretty. And I have to admit this. I've always been a fan of time travel. So I live in an old Spanish 1920s home. It had a guest room in it. So years ago, I decided I don't want to live in any other year but 1939. So I took this one room and literally decorated it. And nothing is newer than 1939 with a 39 tower radio, then collected broadcast from 39 and then broadcast them on one of those Mr. Microphone kind of AM broadcaster into this radio. So you could turn the radio on and the actual broadcast coming out of the radio on the old Mon speaker would be and Chandler's story, Red Wind, you know, it'd be these detective things. I had detective magazines and I could literally come home from Disney from work and go into the year 1939 and not come out till I was ready. That's fantastic. That's everybody's dream. This is kind of what I do for people. People like, you know, I go, hey, Eddie, can you make me a 1912 Great Gatsby room? That's exactly like, I go, yeah, of course. You know, I also have this fascination with cars from 1939 hmm. or cars pre-1939 around that era. So I have a tremendous fascination for the Delahaye and the Cord and all those elegant 
cars. Packards, of course, are phenomenal. Cars of that time, just to ride around in them and be uncomfortable like they are in those films. <laughs> Two people are in the back seat and you're kind of like, you know, how does anything work back there? How do they sit in those teardrop-shaped cars? Or Norman Bell Gettys designed vehicles from the 39 New York World's Fair, things like that. That's right. All that transportation stuff I love to do. And, and designing ride vehicles for Disney, that's exciting. We worked on Indiana Jones, which is a combination of sort of a Jeep and a German Pook troop carrier in a way. But it's a motion-based simulator that had to simulate an automobile. So it all comes around. Boy, it sure does come around, Eddie. I can't think of anybody's career who's gone around into more fantasy directions and created more fantastic experiences than what you've done with your designs and for your clients. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. If you're like us, you're looking for a way to make stay at home a little more special. Well, we're going to let you in on our secret. Join Rob Vices to get luxury cocktail kits, toys, tools, tech, and other incredible items delivered straight to your home on a monthly basis. The value is incredible. Your first box is going to be a $400 tequila curation, and you can sign up for as little as $99 a month. Use the code PODCAST, and you'll save an extra $50 at sign up. So head to robvices.com to bring exciting experiences safely to your door. Remember, use the code PODCAST and go to robbvices.com. And we're back with Eddie Sato. Well, Eddie, with all these great projects under your belt, some of them realized, some of them still in the fantasy stage, such that the client needs to pull the trigger. When we talked for the first time about Sky Yacht, something amazing came of the conversation. If we were to start a new conversation, what are you dreaming of doing now? What would be a great new project? Well, you know, I do love cars and taking these beautiful platforms and then doing exciting things with them. Now, it's kind of funny. Years ago, my wife fell in love with the Galandavagen, the G-Wagons. Oh, for sure. A neighbor on the street had imported one in right yellow. before they actually brought them in. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In, in yellow. This is like in the year 2000s. And so she just had to have one. I go, why would you want that car? She says, it's so ugly. I have to have it. It's so ugly. So it was like driving a sewing machine, this pook-built car. Yeah. So I kept thinking of these things. And so I think we're on our third one now and going through the years of having these things. And now they've kind of turned into a bit of a bling-mobile. And I thought, you know, I'd love to go the other direction. I've wanted to take one and really take it in the Captain Nemo direction. Not steampunk, which I think is kind of cheesy with hot glued gears on crazy people's glasses and cornball stuff. But I'd love to do what I call Nautilian. In other words, like the Disney film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea where the Nautilus, everything worked. It looked legitimate. I had a client I built a Jules Verne rocket ship for that they could use as a conference room. (laughs) And it's it's in their offices and it's a beautiful conference room. This is sort of like G-Wagon that's half bathysphere and half fall-terrain vehicle. Well, you know, I mean, just a touch of it. I mean, imagine if you just flipped all the materials and the metals and used beautiful red velours inside and stuff like that or deep maroon and kind of created almost like the time machine as a vehicle and just did beautiful brass touches to it and stuff. I feel like it's so functional and it's so brutal instead of trying to make it a braggadocio vehicle where it's the tallest most lifted outrageous undrivable car and i'm like well okay why can't you just make it the strangest most deranged cool car and make it really (laughs) elegant inside where you get inside and it looks like a bit of a chrome hearts jewelry store that's right and you kind of go 
who did that? And maybe we do the paint finish in a patina, kind of a verdigris patina. So mm-hmm. with rivets, all the hardware would be exposed. You have flush allens. And it's one of the few cars other than a Jeep that has exposed hinges and exposed right. connections. I think those could be bronzed or beautifully brass plated and just make this thing a bit mad, a bit Johnny Depp, a bit mad, just to, just to touch that. There you, you go. Know. And two very authentic designs. You and I, Eddie, we've talked before about furniture. I know that you're uh, hugely informed about interior and furniture design, and you've talked about Fornicetti. Give us a little bit of insight why you think he's so important. Piero Fornicetti in the 1950s actually was making relatively reasonable price products back then that were sort of mass, but also designed. But what I loved about Fornicetti was his incredible graphic power, like his secretary cabinets and things like this. They also bring architecture and furniture together. And so when you have a cabinet or a a settee or I have a desk or two, various things, these objects are treated in in otherworldly ways. There's a certain fantasy to it. But he's also a providence. And I I know that when people think of Fornicetti, they think of Julia and they think of the woman's face and all the different, that's become sort of the Mickey Mouse of it. Sure, the plates. The plates and all those kind of things. But when you really dive deep into the carpets and the other designs, I love that he'll take the Academia of Milan and turn it into a cabinet or he'll take these various things. So I love the idea that like the plane that becomes the yacht, the table becomes something else. Or you can use certain graphics that are even historic. Mm Mm-hmm and bring a story to it. And so there really is a lot of story. I actually, even though they're novelties, some of the neckties are really cool. Or That's right. Are, and you're wearing a brick wall or you're wearing, yeah. you're playing with materials. And, and again, I don't take myself seriously, as you could probably tell. And I love that Fornicetti really doesn't take himself entirely seriously. The design is considered very revered and some of it is considered just incredibly high art. But at the same time, there's a certain smirk in it. There's a certain cheekiness about some of it. It's absolutely true. I mean, he and Gio Ponti are to me two of the most interesting Italian designers of the era, but Fornicetti, it's almost as if Rene Magritte decided to design furniture. There's (laughs) some incredible ingenuity there, but there's also a real tongue-in-cheek approach to creating a picture, and Fornicetti is definitely that. I mean, it's great stuff. You reminded me, an architect once said, was this actually a set designer? said to me, he goes, Eddie, and we were designing a street that turns where you couldn't see the end of the street. So the facades kind of go around the corner. And I was struggling with how to get the facades in perspective. It gets smaller and smaller and smaller as it goes around this turn. And you want the guest, of course, to be intrigued enough to walk over there and look at it. So the statement was made, great architecture asks questions. And I kind of thought even further than that, I thought, you know, great design asks questions. At Rivera, the restaurant that we had designed, I worked with this genius chef, John Rivera Sedlar. He stenciled quotes and images on the dishes out of spices that went. You'd have to see it on our website, on Sato Studio site. These gorgeous dishes that would have a statement or a picture or a quote to get people to talk, to even get the food to ask questions. And I think it's really important that even impressionist art asks questions, makes your brain finish the painting, democratizes the art in a way that you can do something. So if I'm working on a car for something or I'm working on something, I don't paint the entire thing. The client, we work together to kind of democratize it and, and not make it such a dictated story. Like Fornicetti, there's smiling fish in, on the wallpaper in my house, these Fornicetti wallpaper. And I look at them over and over because I want to imagine what they're thinking. It's like, what is your dog thinking? That's right. That's right. 
this idea of creating design, and I feel like sometimes the more modern and the computer automobiles that are just so done for you, they're really not giving you that sort of fantasy like the DB series does with James Bond, where you have a character associated it. It's funny, I, I did the soundtrack for a ride, Space Mountain, the first time we put music on it. And it's because I had a Volkswagen Golf convertible and I would play Dick Dale's surf music or the theme to the Batman TV show and do burnouts in the Disney parking lot and stuff and race around the Disney parking lot in this car because I was trying to drive and score and reverse the music to my driving experience. Well, a friend was in the car and we were about to apply a FedEx sponsorship to Space Mountain. I said, well, why don't we just put the music on the ride and we'll get Dick Dale, just like this thing, to, to play surf music that's timed to the curves. So again, it's bringing the humanity into the driving experience. I guess that's why I like Porsche so much. Well, there are sports cars because if you're angry, it's angry. You're getting this feedback. Mm -hmm. and it's not, mm -hmm. I think electric cars, I don't know quite what the feedback is unless we manufacture the sounds. And I'm very intrigued about creating custom sounds for people's electric cars. So call me if you want to do that. <laughs> so we'll, we'll, we'll score. No, we're going to score your Tesla so it makes a really bitching sound when you drive around. We'll take a quick break and come right back. A Moment of Your Time, a new podcast from Kurt Co Media. Currently 21 years old. And today, I felt like I'm magic extended from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take care spine. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice. every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my but dream. fingers were facing me. You can feel like your purpose and your worth is really being questioned. going to stop me from playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't love humans. We never did. We never will. We just find the one The beauty of rock climbing is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kurtcode.com slash a moment of your time. And we're back with my guest, Eddie Sato. Eddie, you are not short of ideas, and clearly the future of fantasy is in expanding those ideas and turning them into reality. I, I just, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. The way you approach the experience as a really holistic thing that incorporates every sense, the visual sense, the tactile sense, the sense of hearing, smell, touch, everything. It's clear that these senses are not mutually exclusive, but that they're all a part of the ride. And let's talk about the ride for a second, if you don't mind, because to me, one of the passions I have is the internal combustion engine. I don't know if any of the listeners are steam locomotive fans, but when I was a kid, <laughs> when I first saw steam locomotive at Knott's Berry Farm, and it sits there, you know, waiting to leave the station. You talk about a bull in the pin. That is one <laughs> exciting pent-up animal, isn't it? Yes, thank you. It is a pent-up animal, and it's breathing. It's like a bull that the yeah, steam is yeah, gasping yeah. out of its nostrils, waiting for it to kind of, like, you know, a bull will take and stroke its feet before charging. The locomotive slips about three or four times before it gets traction and takes off. That's that right. Chum, chum, chum. Well, these things have this humanity about them. They have this life about them. And I think as much as electric cars have this acceleration, this instantaneous torque, which is very, very cool. It's addicting. It's addicting because as a kid, I love golf carts. A Tesla is just a bigger golf cart. So, But there's also something like when Porsche would tune the feedback 
of the vibration so you know when the shift points are and you can feel shift points as you drive this is experiential mm-hmm. don't think that it's any different than riding a horse because your your legs are clamped around the horse and you're definitely taking the feedback of a horse or another living thing and you're interpreting that and you're having a relationship with it and so just like espresso in italy or in venice or florence is one kind of experience. You democratize it at Starbucks. You do lose something in the translation. Okay, you do. You just do. But more people enjoy something from it. But it's this feedback of a Ferrari, which is a very different experience. A Porsche is a very different experience. All these cars, BMW, they have a personality. Unfortunately, now we're artificially creating these sounds of the engine feedbacks because of certain environmental laws and so forth. But barring that, It is this idea of riding the bull, riding the horse, feeling Mm -hmm. it. And of course, my 911 is a water-cooled 911, so I'm the black sheep, fried egg, (laughs) hated person. But I do think it doesn't break down. Well, we can certainly get off on a 996 tangent. I had one Eddie, and it was one of the best cars I've ever owned. You're not going to get any blowback from me, man. And I think, by the way, for our Porsche listeners, that's going to be the next so-called collectible and hang on to your hats because 10 years from now, you'll curse yourself for not buying a garage full of them. Well, you should at least buy the turbo, if nothing else. That's right. By the way, the engineering of that car, it is just, I had it rebuilt and bored. Why would I pay to rebuild that car? It was paid for. And I love it. I just love driving it. The beauty of driving it is you can't see the headlights from inside the car. (laughs) (laughs) It's a narrow body. So I just love it. Mulholland Drive is... It gives you a million reasons to like the car. That's absolutely true. It's absolutely true. Well, Mulholland has certainly been a great palette for expressing any number of automotive brush strokes over the decades. It's been yeah. home to, to some great drivers and some great cars. Yeah, but the feedback, I guess the whole thing, the idea, the visceralness of it is so important. And like the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland, it's a motion-based simulator that had to give people the impression that the car was going up and down stairs and doing all kinds of things. And again, when you understand the visceral feedback of your relationship with a vehicle through the steering wheel without the power steering or you're feeling that feedback mm-hmm. directly, all that stuff is just kind of who we are as people. We have to feel alive. I came up with an equation for a great roller coaster, and I think your automotive folks would love this. Fear minus death equals fun. <laughs> oh, I love it. Eddie, that needs to be plastered on a brass plaque. Well, I, I trademarked it, so... We can certainly do the t-shirts, but the fear minus death equals fun is the idea is that you create tremendous anxiety going up the lift of a roller coaster. Like, did I make a mistake? I'm looking down at the ants and they go, well, those are ants. It's on the roller coaster. Oh no, those are people. And then the minute you take off. So all the music on the Dick Vale soundtrack was cued to emotions of terror, anxiety, and release. And, and when you survive, you feel like you're alive again. So that's what racing and all these various automotive things I feel are very much like designing thrill rides, only they're on tracks and a 14-year-old or a four-year-old can win and get those kind of experiences. To me, ride design and automotive are very close together. And even in designing spaceships and cars and all kinds of various things like that, that I feel that you can't kill people either. You, you got to do very safe things. 
That's right. But, you know, it's funny, Eddie, you talk about rides and automobiles being much the same thing. It kind of goes back to that first Autopia experience that I had around 1960. It was an amusement park ride, and it was a car, and it all kind of hatched a plot and created a great big master plan for automotive fantasy that just won't die. You know, it's funny. I remember pitching to Bo Bachman at Gallup, and I said, I want to do, and by the way, I would do this for an individual if they wanted it. I want to do my own e-ticket Mustang. The e-ticket Mustang, which is sort of the all taking probably a Shelby or something like that, or GT, and doing something really fun with it and not disnifying it per se, but just doing some really cool experiential ads to something like that that could just be so fun, maybe a little bit retro and a little bit that. I got to do a work on Pit My Ride with Galpin for a while, and it got fun to do some dreaming behind the scenes of some of these vehicles and just doing some fun things. Well, there's nothing better than a good rat fink model and some memories of childhood building some of those hot rods and memories that just won't go away. What's important to think, too, is that our lives have stories and our stories weave through the cars. And I remember when I was a teenager washing my car to Mott the Hoople and Queen, I'm in love with yeah. my car. You know, there was all those great songs and, and we just all take that with us. I was looking at Pelican Parts the other day for all the wrong reasons for Porsche Parts. And they were talking about the love of automobiles, that we're here for you because you love cars. I'm thinking, no, I'm not here because I love cars today. I'm here because my car won't start and I need to go get a sensor. I need to find another hugely expensive (laughs) thing that's been marked up 90 times. It's sort of this love-hate with it. And I feel like as car lovers, this cycle we have, especially if you don't have to work on your car, but you do, there is this kind of It's this challenge, it's this relationship, it's this puzzle that the car gives and then it takes away. And then you're in there Mm -hmm. and you're like, you'll never admit it to your family. You have to complain that something's wrong, you got to do something, but you secretly enjoy going in there and getting that crankshaft sensor and figuring out or going online to Renlist and reading people that are doing it completely backwards and taking off all eight eight things they don't need to remove just in order to put a brake light in or something. That's right. Uh, Thank goodness for YouTube videos. (laughs) (laughs) Let me ask you this. I always love to wrap up the show with one question that I ask our guests about their cars. Imagine you find that bottle on the beach and inside there's a little note that says you can have three wishes for any three cars you'd like. What would you want to put in your garage? Wow. I have have simple tastes. So my instant answer would probably be like a period car, three different things. I would probably want to put in my garage. I think I'd probably want an Avanti. I love the Pantera. And then going back to my childhood, maybe, just maybe that Lincoln Continental Mark III with the hydraulic controls and stuff inside of it. It's funny, in grades, I go to this class in fifth grade and the teacher says for architecture, design your dream house. So I bring back a drawing of a Boeing, and this is when they were brand new in the early 70s, a Boeing 747 with a Lincoln Continental (laughs) in the cargo hold. And she goes, fail. I go, wait a minute, what do you mean fail? And she goes, I told you to design a dream house. I want you to go make a model of your dream. I go, well, no, no, no. It's a 747. I don't want to be anywhere. And I want this car. This is the one car I want, this black link in there so I can drive anywhere in the world and fly my custom 747. So I guess as a bookend to all of this, putting the dream car in the dream plane started at about fifth grade. 
Well, Eddie, what a great conversation. If anybody, it's one thing to listen to the story. It's another thing to see some pictures. I would encourage our audience to check out some of your work at sotostudios.com or sotoluxury.com. Picture is worth, in some cases, a thousand words, and these pictures will blow you away. Eddie, thanks so much for the conversation. We look forward to having you back. Thank you. Certainly when our little lockdown is over, I'll be seeing you down at Sato Studios in LA and we'll uh, talk about the next project. Dream on. Thank you so much, Robert. This has been a great, fun experience. (laughs) What a pleasure. Thanks to Eddie Sato for joining us on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross. Produced by Chris Porter. Edited by A.J. Mosley. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.